Hello everyone, before I start, if you'll forgive me, I have a podcast recommendation for you all. It's called the British Food History Podcast. I recommend it to you on the rigorous selection process that I really like it, and maybe you will too. Also, it's a great and rich subject. Most of all, though, I really like the host, who is Dr Neil Buttery, and he really knows what he's talking about. He's an author, a PhD in the subject, he's got a really good blog as well, actually. But the main thing is he's an absolute and total enthusiast, and that, to me, is the heart of independent podcasting. He's doing it because he loves his subject primarily. He's a warm and lovely host. He has lots of really great guests. So Diane Perkis of The People's History of the Civil War fame, she was there, for example. She's now done The People's History Approach to Food. There's one just out on medieval food and one I absolutely loved on school meals. How I laughed at that one and cried just a little bit at the memory of the tubes in school liver. So much yuck. Anyway, it's great. Give it a go on your normal podcatcher, the British Food History Podcast with Dr. Neil Buttery. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Hello everyone and welcome to the History of England, episode 330, John Bates Currents. Before I start, you know Twitter, right? Social media thingy-mob? Pit of vile hatefulness and glib opinion given without thought of consequence? Well, I have to record that on occasion. It can be really useful and positive, and I'm going to tell you why very quickly. So, I came across a quote from Francis Bacon, the 17th century legal and philosopher chappy, as opposed to the modern painter and decorator. And the quote was this. Treasure and monies in a state be not gathered into few hands. Money is like muck, not good, except it be spread. We'll come back to why Fran said this later, or next time, or whenever, but I thought it was a good metaphor. Well, Eric then pointed out on Twitter that it wasn't really a metaphor. In fact, it was a simile, and we shared notes from school about having been taught this. I... Unlike Eric, never thought the difference between simile and metaphor was worth the rough end of a pineapple. Anyway, at this point in comes Salik, who explains that a simile is meant to make a short, punchy point, such as, guests are like fish. After three days, they start to smell. Metaphors are used to explain complex or abstract concepts using simple, well-known imagery, of which Chesterton's fence is apparently a good example which you'll need to look up in the spirit of investigative education. Well, all I can say is that after 50 years plus of feeling vaguely irritated whenever anyone said as cool as a cucumber, Salik and Eric have lifted a weight off my elbows. 
Anyway, by way of starting the history stuff, you know, the reason for this podcast, in April 1606, James VI and I of Scotland and England issued a decree. The decree announced King James, or King of Great Britain, as he liked to call himself to his rubber duck when having his Sunday evening bath, was for a new flag to be used. And the new flag melded the flags of Scotland and England. There were quite a few designs that folks had gone through, it has to be said. Some of them are reasonably rubbish, but look, design is a creative and iterative process. The resulting flag looks remarkably like the Union flag of 1801, just without the red saltire of St Patrick and Ireland, which was added at that point. So there was no Welsh dragon, which I confess would irritate the bejesus out of me where I Welsh, but this was on the principle that the flag of St George represented the United Kingdom of England and Wales. Don't shout at me, I'm just the messenger. Interestingly, there was an attempt relatively recently to update the flag, but I think it crashed and I suspect it burned. Back in the day when the island of Ireland was part of the Crown's possessions, there was no specific symbol for that, but the protectorate did add the harp, but which lasted only two years. Anyway, the Union Jack was part of James's enthusiastic attempt to create a new British state, which had been espoused and supported by the House of Lords, but run into trouble in the Commons. With Edwin Sands' clever intervention, that all the laws of England and Scotland would need to be negated if that happened, and would all need to start again. James was most frustrated, and most irritated, at the lack of enthusiasm for his scheme. Salisbury returned to the fray as Parliament reconvened after the excitement about the gunpowder plot had finally subsided. Salisbury, ever the diplomat, worked very well and very closely with the Earl of Dunbar and the Scottish Privy Council, but frankly more generally there was dislike both sides of the border. The English were thoroughly miffed with the Scots surrounding the King and the handouts that they were getting, and could only conceive of a combined nation which operated under English laws. The Scots basically thought the same in reverse, and refused the idea of losing their distinctive laws, and the thought that they might be ruled by a deputy king. Also, there was a deal of personal antipathy. One Scot, Patrick Gordon, mused that England was a nation which, being so often conquered, is become slavish and takes not as evil to be slaves to their superiors. While an English MP, Christopher Piggott, declared that the Scots had not suffered above two kings to die in their beds these 200 years. In which he did have a point, but it is a bit unfair given that James III had died of disappointment when his invasion of England ended in disaster at Solway Moss, James IV died at the end of an English pike, and James V blew himself up. Anyway, for reasons of historical inaccuracy, Piggott was censored by Parliament and sent to the Tower to write out I must not make rash generalisations about history just to try to make some facile political point one million times. There are some modern candidates for the same punishment, but I guess t'was ever thus, in fact. All of this drove James up the proverbial wall. He simply couldn't see why it was all such a problem. And it's quite interesting to reflect why the views of the Commons on one side and the King and Peers on the other remained so far apart. 
because it's all tied back to the concept of kingship and constitution, which will be a bit of a thing in the 17th century England. For James, all these folks were just his subjects, and therefore all should be the same, and could be the same easily enough. And after all, the king was above petty considerations like the law. For plenty of people in the commons, actually, no, the law was superior to the king. So the pair disagreed about where lay the ultimate source of authority. Hmm, that'll be interesting. Generally, the commons remained at odds with each other in England and Scotland, which is a thing, and I suppose not that unusual, given that both parties had been beating seven bells out of each other for hundreds of years. For the English, there was the sight of Scottish snouts in the English trough. For the Scots, the court at Whitehall increasingly represented all the negative aspects of the British link. Toleration for Catholicism, corruption, rampant, excessive royal expenditure with a strong strand of arbitrary government. Interestingly, in the increasing distrust of court on behalf of the country generally, there will also be common interest and views between English and Scottish commons in all these aspects. Watch this space. Anywho, in March 1607, James made the best of a bad job, and he rather graciously apologised to Parliament for having assumed the issue would be such a gimme and the idea of the onion was dead. There were some achievements. Parliament did pass a law removing hostile laws to allow Scots to become English citizens, though to be fair, it was a heated debate and a full and frank exchange of views without the beer and sandwiches, and it wasn't really very clear what had actually happened by the end of the session. So step forward Salisbury, a clever man, who engineered a court case of a Scot called Robert Calvin, and at the court case in 1608, Robert was duly naturalised as an Englishman, confirming that any Scot born after James's accession in 1603 would automatically be naturalised Englishman. Apparently, Calvin's case would be a thing in the 18th century America in establishing rights to law by right of birth, but don't quote me on that. I have no idea, though, whether the reverse was true and whether English had all the benefits of Scottish law for the same reason. The textbooks I have read for some reason do not think that way round to be worth discussing. So if you'd like to let me know, that would be great. I mean, I assume it was reciprocal, but I don't actually know. More progress, it has to be said, was made at the level of the nobility of both England and Scotland. They mingled, ladies and gentlemen, they mingled at royal courts, both James and Anne's courts. They intermarried and James's actions at least started the process of establishing some sense of Britishness, with which the British flag helped. Coastal trade from Scotland to London increased, and so ordinary people began to see some benefits as well. And there was another monster benefit, which does sneak its way into the edge of the general textbooks, and this benefit comes with the end of the name Reaver, which is is it not? A tremendous word. It's a Germanic word, apparently, to break, tear apart, coming to then mean plunder, steal and rob. Many moons ago, when those small furry creatures from Alpha Centauri were still duly furry, we had an episode on the Reavers who, in English and Scottish traditions, inhabited the land 
either side of the borders, and indeed inhabited some bits in the Western March, which no one could agree to which nation they belonged, which was called the Debatable Land. The whole of the March were very, very clannish. Family fought family, and names like Graham, Armstrong, Carr, Forster, Charlton and more were synonymous with life there. Before talking about what James actually does there, let us talk a little about what life was like on the northern marches, or indeed southern marches, depending on where you start. Now, if our Hobbesy had ever been there, he'd have seen that his nasty, brutish and short thing was something of an understatement, and he'd have done better to build in a few more superlatives. The laws of the march were very ambiguous, and the application of the laws even more ambiguous. The tradition of riding, of gathering together the clan and raiding and pillaging, was written into the landscape and buildings with heavy stone squat buildings and towers with tiny openings that could be defended at short notice. There's a sort of romantic afterlife of the Reavers, I suppose, a sort of way of life narrative. But really, you would not want to bring up a family there between the 13th and 17th centuries. The insurance premiums would have been a nightmare. To give you one example of an event much romanticised, let me introduce you to Walter Scott of Buccleuch and Kinmont Willie Armstrong. Kinmont Willie Armstrong was a Scot of whom we first hear in 1583 on a raid into Tyndale in England. Next we hear of him. He's having a hack in Scotland, fighting for the Earl of Arran in a raid on Stirling. Then again, back to Tyndale, with supposedly a thousand men, which sounds too big to be true, to be honest, and apparently carrying off 2,000 head of cattle and £30 worth of goodies. Next, 1600, Armstrong attacked the village of Scotby, near Carlisle, with 140 riders burning and taking prisoners and cattle. So, charming lad. And as you can see, violence was part of daily life, and lordship and family allegiances meant much more than nationality. Armstrong's luck did run out one day. There he was riding home in Liddlesdale under a one-day truce, so, you know, no need to hurry, plenty of time to smell the heather. Suddenly the English deputy, Thomas Salkeld, and 200 troopers appeared and chased him across the landscape until after four miles he was finally taken and dragged off to prison in Carlisle. Armstrong had been the victim of the officers responsible, apparently, for maintaining the law. The borders were split up into three marches, western, middle and eastern, and officers appointed to both sides to maintain law and order, at which, they must be said, they did a toweringly rubbish job. Obviously, it was a tough rap, endemic violence, but worst of all, the cooperation between Scottish and English officers was extremely patchy and completely unreliable. So, just for an example of this, enter into this story Walter Scott of Buccleuch, the keeper of Liddlesdale. So a man who was supposed to be working with his opposite number in England to maintain the peace. Instead of doing that, Buccleuch gathered 80 men, raided Carlisle, got into the castle by trickery and sprung the murdering Willie Armstrong from justice. There was a diplomatic incident, but James VI was unwilling to shop his man. But as it happens, the flash art like Scott turned himself in. 
was found guilty, of course, and was presented to Elizabeth I. Elizabeth liked a dashing rogue and announced, With ten thousand such men, our brother in Scotland might shake the firmest throne of Europe. I can imagine poor old Burley's head hitting his hands as Buccleuch rode triumphantly back to Scotland scot-free. Buccleuch was an adventurer. Before long he was fighting for the Dutch in the Low Countries against Spain. When he came back, though, it would be for a very different job. Essentially, in short, the violence of Riva society was a result of the border. Note bene. Borders breed distrust, violence, social disadvantage. Just saying. The borders split law-keeping into opposing camps, and the peacekeepers were as likely to fight for their own side and cause violence as much as they were to prevent it. So the disappearance of the border with the arrival of James, king on both sides, was a big thing. Now, those responsible for the peace reported to the same man. They were on the same side. And James was determined to re-establish the king's peace. It is significant that James now referred to the borders as the Middle Shires, and actually also talked about North Britons and South Britons that rather than Scotland and England very often. However, it must be said that his attempt did not start well. There was a convenient rumour, you see, that when a monarch died, all their laws were suspended until a new monarch was crowned. This is a handy law if you are looking to loot a few head of cattle, just for example. So, as soon as Elizabeth died, it was party time, with added poppers and streamers, and the riders celebrated what became known as Ill Week, a celebration of local custom Scottish Western March riders penetrated on a raid deep into England, south of Carlisle. Hutch and Graham went on a predatory sweep into Cumberland, spoiling, burning, looting. However, James quickly passed an act, snappily entitled, An Act for the Utter Abolition of All Memory of Hostility and the Dependence Thereof Between England and Scotland, and for Repressing of occasions of disorders, and disorders in time to come. Neat. Through this law, border law was completely scrapped, the structure of wardens of the marches deleted, and new lieutenants appointed to impose order on the middle shires. In 1603, a new armed guard was sent to Dumfries, and the process started, and as a result, 32 Elliots, Armstrongs, Johnstons and Bates were executed, 15 were banished, and 140 were outlawed. The pacification of the Middle Shires was a brutal process for a few years. A commission of five Scots and five English was created, and they went hunting. They were not too choosy about who and how they administered justice. In Scotland, actually, the summary justice of the borders was called Jeddart Justice, after the town of Jedburgh, where such justice was administered. It essentially means to ask for forgiveness rather than permission when it comes to hanging people you don't like. One of the many recruited to suppress the Reaver's way of living was, with deep irony, our Walter Scott of Buccleuch, back from the Dutch wars, who filled up his boots with hanging and drowning Reavers without trial, for which James gave him complete legal immunity. In fact, 
Buckley was commended in 1608 for his services and died in his bed in 1611. There was an incentive for the men appointed by James to rub out the reavers, and one of those incentives was that arch-favourite land. And here we must revisit the story of the Grahams, which we have mentioned before, I think. The Grahams of the debatable land had a particularly notorious reputation for violence and lawlessness. The deputy of the Scottish Commission, William Cranston, by this time was reporting that he'd banged up so many reavers he had nowhere to put them anymore. One solution was to send them to war in the Low Countries, another James hit on was to transport Graham's lock, stock and barrel to Ireland, around Roscommon. The benefit of that was not just in getting rid of some of the most violent people in a violent part of the country, but also because their land would now be available for redistribution. I think they may call this a double whammy. Fifty families were herded to Workington and thence shipped out. James's first experiment with Irish plantations. It was a disaster, underfunded, undersupported. The Grahams fled, died or came back. As late as 1614, proclamations were being issued forbidding Grahams to return from the Low Countries or Ireland. But William Cranston kept at his bloody business. In July 1609, there was a mass hanging of thieves at Dumfries and the Earl of Dunfermline was able to report to James that he had purged the borders of all the chief malefactors, robbers and brigands, as Hercules sometimes is written to have purged all gears, the king his escuries. According to him, the middle shires were now as quiet as any part of the civil kingdom in Christianity. Now, he may have been exaggerating just a wee bit. In 1611, the Scottish Privy Council reports 38 who were to hang at Jedburgh. But the truth is that the union of the crowns and James's determination to bring peace at any cost to the Middle Shires had worked, had, within a few short years, brought peace to an area racked by violence for generations and centuries. It was brutally done, but it needed to be done. And it was done, and life was better as a result. Well played, Jim. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Oakley Dokley. Now, as I remember, last time I promised you faithfully that we would talk about money. I have to say, I've always been given to understand that it's terribly, terribly vulgar to talk about money. One just doesn't. But sadly, vulgar or not, we need to talk about it together, you and I. So tighten your various sphincters and let's do this thing. OK, we're going to start in April 1606 and you and I are going to visit the docks in London. We're going to watch a merchant called John Bate. He's managing the unloading of a cargo from the Levant 
on which the man has made a packet, currants. But John Bate is steaming. Bate supplied something like a quarter of the entire demand in England for currants, but his business was in trouble, as was that of the association he was part of, the wider Levant Company. Disruption of war and the cost of royal impositions and taxes has caused problems for years. Now, although a new deal from Salisbury was in the offing for the Levant Company, the tax on currents remained horribly high, and Bate was in debt to the Crown for his customs dues to the tune of £900. And mainly because the Crown had imposed a much higher customs tax on said currents. Now, John Bate was confronting a farmer. That is not, in this case, a bloke with a smock and a twig of straw sticking out of his mouth. No, this is a financial bloke with cold eyes and a fat purse. This is a man who gives a sum of money up front to the Crown every year for the right to collect the Crown's customs dues. And he hopes that he's paid the Crown less than he can squeeze from those merchants and thereby make a tidy profit. The arrangements for customs farming had been made a couple of years before in what was known as the Great Farm. Salisbury and the Lord Treasurer, the Earl of Dorset, had realised that with a bit more structure, the Crown could make a bit more cash out of customs. And as we'll hear in a while, the Crown could do with a few more bob hitting the royal purse. And so, they'd invited bids from financial farmers, and those financial farmers had run around like blue-bottom flies, burned the candle at both ends, twisted the arms of the accountants to cut their profit margins, ordered late-night pizzas and got the bid in five minutes before the tender window closed. Or at least, that's my experience of bids and tenders. Well, for the Crown, the Great Farm gave them an assured revenue. For the farmers, if they were clever, they could screw out more than they'd given from the merchants and so make a profit, and everyone was happy, possibly apart from the merchants and indeed consumers, but hey. So profitable for farmers was the great farm that Salisbury increased the price as soon as 1607, but they were still minting it. Anyway, so back to that customs farmer at the Levant Company docks and the merchant in their crosshairs, John Bate. The customs farmer had reached the end of his tether too. Bate owed him 900 quid. That was enough already. There was no more Mr Nice Guy, no more bottomless pit of generosity, no more credit. And he ordered Bate's cargo impounded to pay for the outstanding debt. Well, you don't separate a man from his currents without a lot of pain, and Bate wasn't having it. He ordered his carters to just ignore the customs man and declared... He would stand between them and all farmers. And the courts then later recorded, upon which violent course taken by the carrying away of goods from the officer and from a constable there assisting the officer, many people gathered together in the streets, by which concourse there might have followed a great mischief. Well, Bate was duly carpeted, as you'd expect, hauled up in front of the Privy Council and committed to the Marshalsea Prison. Parliament, though, Parliament saw an issue into which their teeth could fully and deeply sink. 
merchants were being squeezed unacceptably hard. But more than that, what was this with all these new customs impositions? True, Parliament granted customs dues income to the Crown traditionally at the start of each reign, but this big increase on customs tax on currents, that was new. Last time Parliament had looked, they were responsible for granting taxation. What's your game, mister? said MP Fuller in Parliament, or at least words to that effect. By the 11th of April, merchants in London had gathered around their fellow merchant John Bate and hired legal counsel and prepared to take the crown on. Well, I guess Salisbury and Dorset could have chosen the path of emollients. After all, the Levant Charter was in the process of being finally agreed, and maybe they could have cut a deal in that process. But Salisbury's back was to the wall. He needed money for his king. He needed money very badly indeed. Let me explain briefly about the money though honestly I'm getting a sense of déjà vu. I think I might have mentioned that one of Burley and Elizabeth's failings were that they'd never updated the tax assessment system. And of course, since local great men and peers were able to control their own assessment level, the whole system was pretty rotten, as evidenced by Burley's frankly risible level of tax. So, in 1588, a single parliamentary subsidy had raised... £137,000. But by 1601, the same subsidy raised but £76,000. Customs valuations, wardship changes, income from land, all these had been neglected, and meanwhile inflation was also at work. So, by 1602, it's been calculated that the Crown's ordinary revenue of £357,000 was worth 40% less in real terms than it had been at the end of Henry VII's reign. Well, I hear you say, pshaw and pish. Good Queen Bess had not struggled with money. As I believe again, I have said, actually her debts at death were pretty much covered by the subsidies being collected while she croaked. Nonetheless, people saw trouble ahead. Sir John Harrington observed that England of late is bankrupt grown, but one good steward would put all in order. He meant his new King James, of course. But a weary Scottish privy councillor might have warned them that good steward was definitively not what they were getting in their new manager. Although to give him his due, Jimmy had costs that Elizabeth did not. He had a queen consort and her household, a son and prince, and his own growing household and costs. Things had started badly. It cost him 10,000 quid to get south, £20,000 for Elizabeth's funeral. Royal ambassadors were costing him 40000 and in the first five years of the reign, the war in Ireland dragged on and cost £600,000. But James can't get away from it. He was financially incontinent. We've already mentioned the massive £44,000 payment he kept just the three courtiers, and that was just the tip of the lettuce. He kept giving money away to courtiers in the form of grants, pensions. So in 1603, when he arrived, fees and annuities for royal officials had cost £27,000 a year. Just five years later, in 1608, it was £48,000 a year, and it would keep going north to reach £105,000 in 1614. 
By 1610, James had given his Scottish pals £90,000 in gifts and £10,000 were going out every year in pensions to them. Now, Parliament was already jaundiced. Giving money now seemed like chucking a sausage down Granby Street. I have no idea what that means, by the way. My mate Nick said it 40 years ago. We all laughed and had no idea then what it meant anyway. No point to it in this case. So as one wit wrote... The Scotchmen are but beggars yet, though their begging was not small. But now a Parliament will sit, a subsidy shall pay for all. And just to finish off the story of doom and indeed of gloom, income from Crown lands were falling too, because those Crown lands were getting smaller. James had sold £682,000 worth of undervalued Crown land by 1613, losing annual revenue of 27,000 quid. Peter was robbing Paul blind. Now, Salisbury was a resourceful man and a hard-working one too. He laboured away to find unrealised dues and fines and debts for the crown and raise more cash if he could through wardships. Salisbury's Chancellor of the Exchequer, most amusingly, was called Sir Julius Caesar, quite a name to live up to, and he looked on admiringly and noted that in a single day's work, Salisbury had raised over 9,000 quid for the king from improved leases. Plus, the great farm had yielded more money. But of course, there was a limit to all this back-of-the-sofa stuff. So, Salisbury gathered himself emotionally, and he put things pretty straight to his king, and managed to persuade him to put an entail on his lands so that he could not give them away permanently. But James's expenditure did not go down. So, in short, the right to increase customs dues and the right to make new impositions without reference to Parliament was utterly crucial as far as Salisbury was concerned. He had to find some way of not sailing the ship of state over the falls. And anyway, as far as his master was concerned, James was able to impose whatever dues he liked in Scotland. So why not in England too? What was going on? He could not understand why there'd be a problem. So, all in all, Bates challenge to the right for the Crown to impose customs on currents must be fought. Because it was not just about currents. Oh no, it was about the principle, with a capital P, of impositions, with a capital I. And fought it would be. Now then, you all know, of course, that justice is blind. Blind to their participants and the kind of people they are. Blind to power. We know that, of course, from Thomas More's trial all that time ago. That was irony, by the way. But it is true to say that all that blundering around with a blindfold on must be injurious to health, don't you think? When walking around the corridors of justice with a blindfold on, surely the old lady would profit from having a guiding hand on her elbow. The old lady in this particular case being the barons of the exchequer who were to try the case. And we have a delightfully fresh face and innocent little note from Lord Treasurer Dorset to Salisbury, saying that he'd taken Salisbury's letter about the need to win the case against Bate, and then, I sent for my Lord Chief. Baron of the Exchequer early in the morning and had conference with him according to the contents of your letter. Afterwards in the court, I had like 
conference with the rest of the barons. Hmm. Well, in fact, as Lord Treasurer Dorset, I suppose, was entitled to exercise full judicial function in the cases before the chancellors of his department, the Exchequer, but they do appear to have gone a little bit further here. As Secretary of State, Salisbury was, in fact, having a discussion at one remove with the barons judging the case. Partly about getting a quick verdict and discussing whether or not they should give a full explanation of the case. Anyway, duly in November 1606, the court made its pronouncement that the impositions on currents was lawfully imposed by the Crown. Bate was forced to pay his £900 in costs and the merchants backing him melted away before the might of Salisbury and the Crown and lodged no appeal. Bate would duly go bankrupt by 1616. Now for James, this was just as it should be, surely. The king was supreme, the king was short of a bob or two, so the king imposed taxes, just like back home in Scotland the Brave. What are we even discussing this for? And swords for a man? Why is it all taking so long? Anyway, I'm off hunting, Abyssinia. For the London merchants, they were for the moment very much cowed. Dorset was cock-a-hoop and pronounced the judgment the best judgment for the crown and the clearest that ever was. As far as he and James were concerned, this opened the floodgate to loads of new impositions on loads of new things and loads of money. No need to refer to Parliament anymore for customs, at least. But Salisbury realised that in fact the case of John Bate, the Levant Company and Currents was a very tainted case all wrapped up in negotiations with the Levant Company, and so it was rather difficult to use it as a general principle, unlike James's view. So when extra money was needed the following year in 1607, the Privy Council went for a loan to try and avoid the issue, but by 1608, as James rode the ship of state into debtor's prison, the Council reluctantly concluded that impositions upon trade would be the best temporary remedy for those charges which were likely to come on too fast to attend a parliament. And though Salisbury was to defend himself later by saying the new impositions were placed only on spices, silks, cloths of gold on other such things as we are desirous should be made at home, customs dues duly soared. And for many others it was a running sore. Jews rose to £70,000 a year, which is a hefty sum. Now, for the commons, this was simply illegal. New taxes could not be imposed without the consent of Parliament, and the issue would not go away. In 1610, the commons presented a petition about it to the king. Interestingly, the French ambassador was with him when he received it and noted that it gave him un assez mauvais visage and that later the king said acidly to him that the petition of grievances from the commons was long enough to be his chamber tapestry. The petition objected to the consequences of the Bate case and presented, with all humility, this most just and necessary petition unto your majesty, that all impositions set without assent of parliament may be quite abolished and taken away. I guess the with all humility was the 17th century equivalent of the with-all-due-respect format, so meaning neither humility nor respect. 
But Salisbury stuck to his guns and delivered a reply on behalf of his king to this petition. Though I am no professor of law, I say that whatsoever is done by the warrant of a legal judgment and in his proper seat of justice is not unlawful. The new impositions were laid after a legal judgment whereby his majesty's right was declared in open court, judicially argued and sentenced in the case of currents. And therefore, the new impositions were not unlawful. For the moment, the commons withdrew, grumbling stage left. But to amend the words of those keen observers of historical debate, the cause, the matter of impositions, was not forgiven and not forgotten. Indeed, John Pym, father of the English Revolution, referred to it in 1640 by saying, And for that pretended judgment in the case of currents, God defend that ever that court and a judgment thereon should conclude the whole reign. There's plenty of debate about where the civil wars originated, and the revisionist argument is very much towards later rather than earlier, possibly from the 1620s, maybe even just down to Charles and his actions and approach. But there are others, including Pauline Croft, from whom this article discussion of the Bait case comes, feel that it is possible to certainly trace some roots of discontent to the matter of royal impositions. Money is, after all, the root of all evil, is it not? It's not just that here was an exercise of royal prerogative that the commons believed was not sanctioned by law and custom. It was also that the judgment shook the faith of the commons in the independence of the legal process and judiciary. Bad things follow when that happens. However, in 1607, bad things were happening anyway, to be honest, and they weren't happening to the big names, the important figures that bestride history like Colossi or Romanos who ain't Domus. They were happening to ordinary people, and it is to ordinary people of the Midlands to whom we will turn next time. Now that would of course be an excellent place to end the episode, but hold on there, just a doggone moment. It just so happened that I started a thread on Facebook asking about whether or not folks would like to see the return of the weekly word. It had become something of an albatross trying to think of something relevant to the episode, so, you know, I had stopped. Unwisely, the union flag discussion prompted me to think again here, so we'll have a weekly word now to finish the episode. I am thinking I could start it again through themes I could develop. The top one in my mind at the moment is for landscape features like forms of wood, hangar, shore, plantation, for example, that sort of thing. And it would certainly tie me less to panicking in each episode if I could do them in advance, but then it might break the narrative. Anyway, for the moment, let it be an occasional extra. So the discussion about the Union flag then, obviously, we often call it the Union Jack. Every so often I then see a grumpy or more frequently weary comment about this, usually up on the I'm not angry, just disappointed sort of level. But, you know, people can reach up to the asperity level. So the objection goes that you shouldn't be calling it the Union Jack. Because around the end of James's reign, ships had developed two identifying flags at deck level, in addition to the flags in the tops. At the stern at the deck level was the big ensign, very much in early development, but on its way. Meanwhile, James I had ordered in 1606 that a combination flag, his new British flag of Scottish Saltar and St George's Cross, be flown from the tops. 
However, there was another smaller flag commonly flown at the bow of the ship from the bowsprit. This little flag was called the Jack. So the contention is that the Union flag should only be referred to as the Union Jack when it is flown on a ship. Because, again, the small flag on the bowsprit was called the Jack. But apparently... It is not a requirement. In fact, it is perfectly legitimate to call the flag the Union Jack or whatever, wherever it's being flown. By 1674, the little flag was actually referred to as His Majesty's Jack, and I'm told that in 1908, Parliament even found time to confirm that the Union Jack was the name of our national flag. This got me thinking about the word jack because it's a very nice word and very common, used for a variety of purposes. My grandfather was called Jack as a diminutive, I guess, often for John, which use appeared in a written form first in 1725 and came from the French Jacques, but also Old Dutch. It's also a word for a short padded jacket in medieval times, which is rather curious, since that seems to have come from a colloquial name for a French peasant referred to as Jacques, as in the rebellion of the Jacquerie, for example. So, diminutive, inferior, lowly, is written all, all over the word, with various levels of combination. So, the Jack in a set of playing cards was synonymous with knave, a negative connotation. They're not sure how a diminutive fits in with jackboot, a word for a military boot that appears in the 18th century. It's an early 20th century name for VD, though. It's the name of an Asian fruit. The Australians developed a colourful use for the word, apparently, meaning angry with, as in to be jacked off with someone or something. So, you know, not such a nice word in that context, I guess. And apparently another set of colonials on the other side of the pond use it to denote stealing stuff. Anyway, there can't be many more versatile words. At the base of it, I guess, is the diminutive idea, the lowly peasant, the short garment, the short staff on the bowsprit called the jack. Anyway, confirmation to you all that calling the British flag the Union Jack is perfectly legitimate, so go for it, and now you have an answer if challenged. That then is it for this week. Good luck, everyone, and... See you all next week. <laughs>